Go ahead and grab your seats. Um, it, it's a joy to be with you this morning um, to, to preach the word. I, I like what Joey said. I, I like how Joey is so faithful to highlight um, who we are as a ministry at Crossroads College, young adult ministry here at Grace. But Joey said, um, this season of your life, and therefore what we're trying to do at Crossroads, is essential formation. And I like that because it's so true. We're at a stage, you know, in those years, as you're leaving your home, going to college, where, where you're forming um, really the core convictions that are going to be developed for the rest of your life. And so here at Crossroads, we want to serve you by helping you establish those convictions. And I mean convictions about uh, not only your own faith, who is Christ and who am I uh, in relation to Christ, but also things like, what does it mean to be a part of a good church? What does it mean to be a a servant in the church? How do I love Christ more? What does it mean to be a disciple? I mean, um, Austin's been taking us through Mark, which is all about discipleship. Well, this morning, I want us to go to a text in the book of James that also has a lot to do with essential formation. Um, One of the most impactful parts of your life that James addresses in James chapter 3. So turn to James chapter 3. I'll read the first uh, 12 verses, and then we're going to jump into this um, exposition of the tongue this exposition of speech, and there's a lot here for us to learn. So James chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guarded, guided excuse me, by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by sm- such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the living God to us this morning. Well, I want to talk to you for a few moments about napalm. Napalm is one of those American inventions that you wish weren't, sort of like killer drones or nuclear weapons, writes one journalist for Time magazine. 
Sure, their invention might have had to happen eventually, but why should the U.S. have to shoulder credit or culpability for being the first to develop ever better and more lethal weapons? Napalm. What is napalm? It's an incendiary weapon. In other words, a firebomb. It's a combination of gel with gasoline. And when it explodes, it sticks to any surface and burns at more than 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was invented in 1942, sort of at the apex of World War II. And the inventor of napalm, Louis uh, Pfizer, um, tested napalm in a field at Harvard. Um, but when, when he was testing it and uh, inventing it and, and sort of perfecting it, he never envisioned that napalm would be used against people. He thought that this invention would be used against things like buildings and vehicles, but not, he said, babies and Buddhists. But this was the middle of World War II, and Japan had just bombed Pearl Harbor. And so on March 9, 1945, a United States military operation began that would last only two days, the bombing of Tokyo, Japan, with napalm. Just past midnight, hundreds of B-29 Super Fortress bombers arrived over Tokyo, having launched from the Mariana Islands, which the United States had recently captured from the Imperial Japanese Army at great human cost. The aircraft had largely been stripped of their armaments so that they could carry even more clusters of small incendiary munitions. Young American officers in the sky dropped hundreds of thousands of bombs on the working-class section of the city with its densely packed wooden dwellings mainly inhabited at the time by women, children, and men too old to fight. Over several hours, U.S. Army Air Force's warplanes destroyed the Shinomaki, or the low-lying section of Tokyo, and killed an estimated 100,000 Japanese citizens in a firestorm. The United States Strategic Bombing Survey later wrote, that probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any time in the history of man. The single most destructive bomb raid in human history. 16 square miles of Tokyo destroyed. 100 million people left homeless with over 100,000 men, women, and children, babies and Buddhists, dead. Before the world's end, firebombs dropped by B-29s killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese citizens in 65 cities before nuclear bombs leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So this bomb, napalm, like I said, was a gel, and it would latch on to any surface it touched. And it was designed uh, intentionally because in Japan, many of the homes in the cities had, had thatched roofs. And so as soon as the gel would catch, catch onto a roof, it would spread quickly across the other homes. U.S. General Curtis LeMay, who directed the attacks that night, would say just a few years later that on that night of March 9th, we scorched and boiled and baked to death more people in Tokyo than went up in vapor at Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined because of napalm. It's devastating. It's destructive. It's deadly. 
But the Apostle James, in our text this morning, is concerned with something of greater force than napalm, something deadlier, the tongue. Because, as they say, a microphone is more powerful than a bomb. And James sees our words as spiritual napalm. They are incendiary weapons of war with the power of total destruction. And so he gives what one man calls the most penetrating exposition of the tongue anywhere in literature, sacred or secular. This text, these short 12 verses, a penetrating exposition of that weapon that all of us possess called the tongue. He begins this section with a sober warning, and it's actually a warning for me right now. He says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's actually a warning that James opens with to teachers, those who would, who would actually dare to take the words of God and teach them to others. He says, we all stumble in many ways, verse 2, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so what he's saying is there's, there's a great danger when you open your mouth and speak because everyone speaks error. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone says what they should not say. And so It's actually a a terrifying thing to take the words of God and teach them to others. He he opens with a pretty powerful scene. Um, The teacher will be judged with greater strictness. He's talking about the, the judgment seat of God. When a teacher is called to give an account for his life. And I've thought of this often, this scene of standing before the throne of God, which all of us will, being called to give an account for your life, but then for the lives of all those you influenced. You see, it's it's one thing to believe something that's destructive to yourself, right? And to keep it to yourself. It's dangerous for you. But it's another thing to believe something that's destructive to yourself, but then to teach that to others, because then it destroys them as well. So we see all through Scripture, um, often the, the harshest judgments, certainly in the Old Testament, are not only just for rebellious Israel, but for the leaders of Israel who are teaching them to rebel. Isn't that true with Jesus in the Gospels? How often is he coming against the religious leaders? And he'll speak against a city, but he will target those who teach in the synagogues because they are leading others astray. And so James opens up with a very sober warning, which takes us right to the seat of God's judgment when a a teacher will be called to give an account for every word spoken. And let me just take a moment here to to warn. We've got seminarians uh, among us, uh, many of you are, are, are gifted teachers and are desiring to be used of that way in the church. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, Paul says it's a good thing. It's a noble thing to desire to teach. But 
I think this should give us pause, right? Uh, don't rush in. Don't, don't rush to the pulpit because there is where uh, you have a sense of usefulness or you're needed. Don't, don't rush to the place of greater judgment because James is telling us you'll not only destroy yourself but those who hear you and you'll be called to give an account for that. Now, I like James's disposition. James has, has become one of my favorite New Testament books just because of how dynamic James is as a writer. But he's also so like, personally connected with his audience. And we see his humility just flowing out here when he includes himself in that warning. He, he says, not many of you should become teachers for you know that we who teach. He's very aware that this includes him. James can relate to the danger of the tongue. I can relate to the danger of the tongue. I think, I think all of us can relate to the danger of the tongue. And so this opening, these couple of verses, set the stage for this broader discussion. Words have power. Words don't just float into the air and dissipate like when someone shouted fire, even though there wasn't one, at a crowded Christmas party in Michigan, and 73 men, women, and children were crushed to death in the panicked stampede. Words have power. And so what I want us to do is to walk through this text. I'll I'll give you three points. Um, The powerful influence of the tongue will be verses 3, 4, and 5. We'll look at the destructive influence of the tongue, um, 6 through 8. And then, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, we'll look at the proper influence of the tongue. So let's start with this exposition on the powerful influence of the tongue. Um, Look at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is, like I said, so dynamic. He's constantly using word pictures. He's constantly giving us metaphor and illustration to prove his points. And he does so right, off the, the, right from the start here. He, he takes us to the, the, brit, the bit or the bridle in the horse's mouth. And the, the bit or the bridle is this, um, I don't know if we have any equestrians here. Is that what you, people into horses, equestrians, is that the right term? It's just a little tiny strap of leather, or it might be steel, um, maybe, you know, uh, weighs a pound, and you, you place it into the horse's mouth, and then uh, if you're racing a horse, you get this little 85, 90-pound jockey to sit on the back of this horse, mind you, this 1,500-pound horse this 2,000-pound thoroughbred, this, this creature with strength and power, and this tiny little 90-pound jockey with a little piece of leather in its mouth just pulls one side, pulls the other, and the entire horse goes where the jockey wants it to go. It's a good illustration. Or a rudder. Think about a rudder. James says, um, look at these ships, these massive ships, which are out in the middle of the sea, 
thousands of tons, heavy, with cargo and, and hundreds of people aboard. And there's this very small rudder, just a piece of wood or a piece of steel or iron sticking down at the bottom of the ship. And there's a little steering wheel and the, the pilot just turns it left or right. And the entire ship turns because of the rudder. Well, he's making a point about the tongue. The tongue is an organ. We've all got this organ in our mouths. It averages only three inches in length. It's not a bone. There's no bone in it. It's a muscle, which is why you're able to talk so much. Um, And it's not just one muscle. It's eight muscles in this little part of your body called the tongue. It's sensitive, right? It's small. It's unnoticed. The only time you really notice your tongue is when maybe you cut it or um, you eat something sharp or you get a, a, something in your mouth. Or you, but you don't, even then, you don't really think about your tongue, do you? It just goes unnoticed. And yet it's in constant use, though it's hidden. And James's point is it has amazing influence. Think of a powerful sovereign or a cruel dictator swaying an entire nation with their words. And Adolf Hitler, who with his tongue could convince a nation to seek to destroy an entire section of their population, that's a bad use. Or think of a Winston Churchill who would, with his tongue, uh, convince a nation to stand up to the evils of the Nazi regime and to fight and ultimately attain victory. The tongue has amazing influence. That's why James says in verse 5, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And we see here that in these illustrations, Paul is, or James is teaching us something about the tongue. Um, Its purpose is to guide, and its power is great. Which is why our Bibles say a lot about it. Years ago, I went through the book of Proverbs, and I just put a, a, marked a little T next to every verse uh, that had to do with the tongue. I think there was something like over 70 little T's marked through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10.9, a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 26, 18, and 19, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Proverbs 29, 20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. But for all the negative power of the tongue, Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 25, 15, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. You know, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 31, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Jesus had a lot to say about the tongue as well, and we'll come back to this in just a little bit, but you think of a text like Matthew 12, where he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. There's a lot to say about the tongue because the tongue is powerful. 
the powerful influence of the tongue. Let's consider, secondly, the destructive influence of the tongue. And this begins in verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So there's a destructive influence of the tongue. Just ask Willie Stokes, a man who spent 37 years behind bars because someone was convinced to lie about a crime that he didn't commit. Ask any of the thousands of people who spent years behind bars because someone lied about their involvement in a crime. The, the, The tongue can do a lot of destruction. And in his typical style, James gives us a lot of uh, word pictures. He actually gives us nine descriptions of this destruction. Fire. Look at verse 6. It's a fire. A world of unrighteousness. Um, Setting on fire the entire course of life. That, that, That phrase is an interesting one. Entire course of life. Um, Literally, it's wheel of birth. The word wheel was fairly uh, widespread amongst um, the Jews in this time period because it it would be similar to our phrase like a turn of fortune or I guess you could say wheel of fortune. Um, But this this idea of the wheel of existence um, was a way of describing the ups and downs of life. This sort of idea of the holistic nature of life. It covers every facet. Life goes around. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're spinning and have no idea where you are. Uh, That's life. And and so James says this fire sets the entire wheel of life on fire. It destroys the entire course of life. It wreaks havoc on everything. It doesn't just pick and choose when and where in your life to wreak havoc. It's also pervasive. Verse 6 says, it's a world of unrighteousness. It's, he doesn't just point out one area of unrighteousness. It's just an entire world of unrighteousness. So if you can think of unrighteousness, the, the tongue sets your world on fire with it. And notice this. This is really important. It's available. So it's a fire that's pervasive, and it's available. Look at verse 6. Set among our members. In other words, we've all got this weapon in our arsenal. It's available for you to use it however you'd like. Further in verse 6, he says, it stains the whole body. Um, What we say affects how we live, what we do, who we are. And then set on fire by hell. The tongue um, and its destructive nature is demonic and hellish. It says, where, where, he describes that as a fire, and so you say, well, where does this fire come from? And he says, oh, it comes from, it comes from hell. Uh, the word there in the, in the original is Gehenna, which was a valley outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. 
Um, it came to have a very evil reputation that Valley did because of how it was used. Pagan child sacrifices were carried out there, as well as just a place for burning trash. You can imagine the stench, the smell. No wonder that Gehenna has become, has become known as hell. That's where this fire of the tongue comes from. It's demonic and it's hellish. This, um, this use of hell really aligns with James' purpose in this whole letter. The book of James is very much a wisdom for today book. He's, he's giving us practical insight on how to navigate this life with divine wisdom from God. But the only other wisdom available is a worldly demonic wisdom from below. And so if you turn over a page maybe to James uh, 3, um, 13 to 18, that's really the, the thesis of the letter. And there James says, you can either walk in divine wisdom, which produces peace and righteousness, or you can walk in demonic wisdom, which produces all sorts of disaster and destruction. And so playing off of that theme, he says the tongue has this demonic and hellish power to destroy. Now, guys, this should make us pause and terrify us because you have a weapon of mass destruction available to you and you use it all of the time. I think we can just become so familiar that we don't even think in these terms, right? And so we don't even think about how we're using this weapon. It's like the guy who's got so many guns that they're just laying around all over the place and he doesn't even think like, hey, this, this is a dangerous weapon. Um, you might not know someone like that, but go, you know, go to the heartland and you see guns everywhere and they're in the truck, they're on the table, they're, and, and you walk into an environment and go, hey, so why is, why is that out? Like, can we put that away? Is that loaded? But the person is just so unaware that it's just, oh yeah, familiar. Well, our tongue is like, I, James is trying to use very descriptive language to let us realize We've got a weapon in our mouths, and it's available. It's for our disposal at any time we'd like, and it's a weapon of mass destruction. And it spreads hellfire. I mean, that's what he's saying. Well, the descriptions get more frightening because in verse 7, he says it's untamable. Now, just think about a killer whale maybe 22, 25 feet long. You know how much a killer whale weighs? 22,000 pounds on a healthy diet. So more or less. 60 razor-sharp teeth. So as I was thinking of an illustration of an animal, I was just trying to think of like the, the most lethal, and I, I think killer whale, but you could think of I mean, anything else you'd like, a, a large, dangerous animal. You name it. Is it swimming? Is it flying? Is it on land? And James says, we've tamed it. 
I love those videos. You, you, I, I see these every once in a while where it's the little kid at the zoo. You've seen these, right? Up against the plexiglass and like hitting it. And I saw one recently where it was an aquarium and an actual like massive shark is coming towards this kid and the kid's just looking at it hitting and the shark starts hitting the plexiglass trying to eat the child. Um, And the kid's just like, this is great, you know, this is worth the 16 bucks. And the parents are like, go ahead, (laughs) you know, not thinking like this could break. Um, But but it's a good picture because you think that little two-year-old has no idea of the power of that shark or that gorilla, or the lion trying to fit its head in its mouth against the glass. But we've tamed it. We pay 16 bucks, or whatever it is, and walk in and let our kids take pictures next to it. The the largest animals created, we've put leashes on them and put them in cages. And so James is intentionally trying to contrast and say, look at that massive creature, that vicious creature that we put a leash on for our children, but you can't tame the tongue inside your mouth. It's untamable. And it's restless. Verse 8 It's a restless evil, meaning it doesn't stop burning. What made napalm so deadly and so effective is that the gel sticks. Once it lands on an object, it only grows. It can't be taken off. Imagine being covered in gel. And that gel at 5,000 degrees, but like napalm, words stick. Somebody wisely said, be careful with your words, because once they are said, they can only be forgiven, but not forgotten. You may say something and then go to bed, but your words will echo in the minds of those who heard them. You can't unhear something, even if it's not true. This is what makes slander uh, so deadly is you can say whatever you'd like to someone about someone else, and it could be the furthest thing from the truth. But you know what it does? You could even come back a day later and say, oh, I just made that up. But in that person's mind, the impression has already been made on what you said. This is why the media, you think about how how are journalists, how can they be so reckless with what they write, right? Because they know something. They can write something which they know to be untrue, and it makes its impact. It's the front page. It's the the headline on the website. It impacts you, and it forms your opinion of something or someone, and then two days later, they come back and retract it, or they put a little editor's note. But who's paying attention? The damage has already been done. Words can be forgiven, but they can't be forgotten. It's a restless evil. That's deadly, full of deadly poison. It's verbal cyanide. And in verse uh, 9, he says it curses as well. This is similar to the description of the wicked in Romans chapter 3 when he says, well, let me just read it for you, Um, sort of culminating his description of what we all as sinners are Paul describes the wicked as their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses and bitterness. I took my uh, girls to see the California poppies the other day. And um, we're walking through these trails up in Antelope Valley. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> our girls are like just running down these trails, maybe, maybe two and a half feet wide. And then there's brush and there's beautiful flowers. And someone warns us, hey, there, there might be snakes, you know. I said, oh, okay. I hadn't really thought about it. That, what that did for me was I love snakes, so I started looking everywhere for snakes. And what it did for uh, my wife and my girls was say, okay, let's stay in the middle of the path. And I'm not kidding, like literally 30 or 40 seconds after that, we're walking down and I look to the right and there's a three and a half foot rattlesnake, just six inches off the path. So I did this, wow, and, just, and my wife said, come on, girls, let's go. Uh, but, but there is something where you think, hey, there might be snakes, no problem, and then you see it, a massive snake, which if it bites you, you've got, I don't know, an hour, 30 minutes, to live. There's a venom. And that's how Paul describes the cursing of the wicked. It's a deadly venom. You know, maybe you thought after hearing my introduction on napalm, you know how us preachers can get. We get real dramatic, right? So maybe you thought, you know, napalm's pretty, uh, pretty serious. And I think it's a little bit dramatic to say a microphone is more powerful than a bomb. But friends, what James is teaching us here is that napalm can incinerate and burn your body, but words can incinerate and destroy your soul. Words are more powerful than a bomb. Now, James in this section doesn't elaborate on the exact types of speech that are so destructive, but it only takes a brief overview of any wisdom literature to see gossip and slander, flattery even. Enemies flatter. Friends tell the truth. Gossip saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't to their face. Flattery saying to their face what you wouldn't behind their back. We all know words that are critical and unkind. We've experienced it, haven't we? The words that cut and are designed to cut. You've experienced it if you have siblings. (laughs) Because they know your weakness. And so in the moment when they need to be more powerful than you in front of mom and dad, they know exactly what to go to. You've received those kinds of words and they hurt, don't they? But you've also said those kinds of words. Haven't you felt that feeling when it comes out and you think, If only I could take it back. But the look on the person's face makes it clear you you can't take that back. So, James doesn't go through every facet, but Proverbs 16, 28 tells us, A dishonest man spreads strife. A whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 11 and Proverbs 20, 11, 13, and 20, 19, you can look it up later, uses the word, uh, the Hebrew word rakil, which means a scandal monger. I think we should have translated it in the English as that. Maybe the LSB does. Um, but it's someone who carries tales. A scandal monger. Somebody walking around with a bag of, 
of slander and gossip in their bag, just handing it out. Proverbs 10.18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever, whoever utters slander is a fool. The tongue can be a destructive tool in Satan's hand to destroy close friends, to ruin a good reputation, to spread division and hatred. And by the way, not, you, you, you and I often think like our, the, 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 the effect of our tongue is on others. You do realize that it destroys you. And if you're, I mean, think about this. If someone's willing to talk to you slanderously about someone else, how are they going to talk about you to others? You can't trust. You can't trust someone with a slandering tongue. And Matt Ng, uh, I asked his permission to use this. He said, um, when I, I kind of shared with him what I was going to preach on, he said, are you, are you going to let him know that this is the same as this? I thought that was good. I, I had to ask him to use this illustration like with the tongue. So it's texting is what it is, right? <laughs> on a Blackberry. Text. <laughs> yeah, text. <laughs> Who texts like this? Um, I don't know. T- I don't know. This. Um, Social media, texting, you get it. It's the, same, it's the same as talking. It's what we're communicating. So, guys, that's the destructive power of the tongue. But there's, in this text, thankfully, the, uh, an exposition of the proper influence of the tongue. So in verses 9 through 12, he gives us that third point, the proper influence of the tongue. Um, the tongue, yes, it's capable of great destruction, but that's not why it was designed. So, the the genius of mankind to build a skyscraper 2,000 feet into the sky, and the genius of mankind to build airplanes to fly at 700 miles an hour, 30,000 feet above the earth, can take those same airplanes and crash them into those same towers and use what was made for good for evil. So it is with the tongue. It's powerful, and it has a powerful, uh, destructive way about it. You can use it to incinerate, but that's not why it was made. Look at what he says. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. These things ought not to be so. Something's broken when we use our tongue that way. And so you say, well, then what is the proper influence of the tongue? And it's very clear, bless God and bless others. Our mouths are designed to bless our Lord and Father. Um, We sang, what was the first song we sang? What was the name of that song? Um, After the announcements. Psalm 150. That's the name of the song? Oh, great. Well, it reminded me. Oh, man, that kind of gets me in trouble because it reminded me of Psalm 19. So, uh, (laughs) whew. (laughs) <laughs> would have been better if you said Psalm 19 is the name of the song. So t- uh, if you want, turn to Psalm 19 for just a second. We'll just be here for a minute. Um, but, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, change the name of the song, please. But, but the reason it made me think of Psalm 19 is because, I, I don't remember the lyrics exactly, but there's a section where it's saying, everything that has breath, praise the Lord, um, which is a direct quote of Psalm 150 now that I think of it. Um, but in Psalm 19, he talks about everything praising God. The, the created matter, um, like the inanimate objects, the stars, as well as people. And then it talks about God's speech himself. And so in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19, it talks about creation's words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech. And what is this speech? Magnifying God. And then look in verses 7 through 11. We see the beauty of God's words. God's words. The, The inventor of the tongue. The manufacturer of words themselves. The one who created communication. What are his words like? Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. What do they do? They revive, they make wise, they rejoice, they enlighten, they endure. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter than honey. Wow. So the designer of words, what are his words like? But then what Psalm 19 does beautifully is then in the last verses, look at verse 14. It turns to our words. And the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. What he's saying is, Lord, let me take a cue from creation, magnifying your glory. And let me, take, let me take a lesson from you, Lord, who has pure, clean words, which far from incinerating, bless and revive and, and cause joy. Oh, Lord, let my words be like your words. But instead, are we cursing people who are made in God's image? It's not how they were designed. Um, I, I want you to think just for a moment, maybe of, of how others' words have affected you. Maybe that time when you were in a really dark season of life and it was getting on the phone with your mom. Or it was a, a, a best friend coming alongside and, and saying, let's, let's have coffee. I mean, we've had those moments, right? And, and how did those words impact you? By someone talking to you. The, the positive power of what was said to you. And how it, it shifted your perspective. And made you realize that... that the, 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 the darkness was, was passing and it gave you a greater perspective of, of hope or it, it filled you with joy and you walked away from that conversation saying, that's exactly what I needed. I mean, how often is church like that? Or you've just been going through it because of your own stupidity and sin or your circumstances 
And, and you're just going through it. And you're not, you're like, I don't, I'm just going to sleep. I don't want to go to church today. But you, you do. So you get up, you go, and at 12.30 you walk away after that conversation going, man, that just changed everything for me. What was said to me. Just spending time with people who love you. And how they spoke to you. Haven't we experienced that? So, so this, this blessing that, that, you know, there's a text. Go, go quickly to Ephesians 4 because I just want to show this to you for just a moment. And, and I wanted to spell this idea, this myth, um, that words can be neutral. You know how we think, well, our words don't really matter. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told in verse 29, Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What Paul has just done there, if you look, he, he's, he's put two, uh, well, two uses of words next to each other. There's corrupting words, and then there's fitting words that give grace. And all of our words fall into one of those two categories. Either what you said or are saying is fitting and bringing grace, or it's unfitting and tearing down. That word corruption is eroding, destroying. It's the idea of that abandoned building that's been there for 20 years, and it's just falling apart. It says your words either do that to someone else, or they lift up. They give grace to those who hear. It's like the words of the Lord who says, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Friends, there is a proper influence of the tongue. With all of its power, there is a way that we are to be using it, and it's to bless God and to bless others. And actually, what James shows us next is it actually reveals who you are. Some of you here, there are some of you here who speak very highly of God and very low of others. With your words, you bless God. And with your words, you curse those made in the image of God. Like, like meeting someone you respect and saying, oh, Mr. Mr. Jones, it's a pleasure to meet you, and then turning around and cursing his children. But that's his, his point is, how, how can this be? Does a spring pour forth fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James has a message for those of us who want to, with our words, bless God but curse people. And what his message is, is that your words reveal who you are. Your mouth gives you away. This is napalm, spiritual napalm. And for the person that speaks from both sides, something is seriously wrong. This sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 6, no good tree can bear bad fruit, nor bad tree produce good fruit. What James is doing here is getting to the root of the issue. This has to do, how you talk has to do with what kingdom you're in. 
gods or Satan's? Who are you married to? So to use the paradigm of James and wisdom, divine wisdom versus satanic wisdom, he's saying, what wisdom do you possess? Demonic or or godly? So serious that Jesus actually takes us in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33, he takes us to the judgment seat again. I think that's something for us to remember um, as, as James immediately, remember in his introduction, took us right to the judgment seat. Hey, okay, let's talk about words. Uh, hey, teacher, you're going to be judged in the day of judgment more harshly. Jesus does the same thing. I tell you, Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. What do you mean? I'm justified by faith. What Jesus says is, you want to know what kingdom you're in? Look at your words. It exposes you. And it will either justify or condemn you in the day of judgment. Some of us may need new tongues. Alex Matier, commentator, says this, a fig must have a gift tree as its source, a fig tree, sorry, as its source. Um, A grape can only come from a vine, an olive from an olive tree. Salt water has a salt source. Sweet water has a sweet source. Bitter words have a bitter heart. Critical words, a critical spirit. Defamatory, unloving speech issues from a heart where the love of Jesus is a stranger. Friends, some of you may need a new heart. If your tongue let me give you an illustration. This passage has so many, but let me give you one more. And and do turn with me here to Matthew twenty six. I want to give you an illustration, a poignant illustration of the tongue. Matthew twenty six, beginning in verse fifty seven. The scene ought to be a familiar one. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now I want you to notice the tongue. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Friends, the illustration is quite simple. Lying tongues put Jesus to death. But when asked about the lies, Jesus said nothing. His tongue was still, his mouth silent. Why? Because by Jesus submitting to the lies was the only way to rescue us from the lies. 
by Jesus submitting himself to lying tongues flowing from wicked hearts was the only answer to our tongue problem. To save us from hearts that spew out evil. Jesus Christ refused to speak when he was lied about. But, friends, like James, Jesus' main concern is not the damage that can be done by the tongue, but the good that can be done by the tongue. And so he takes lying tongues and converts them to become life-giving tongues. In the gospel, something happens to your heart which transforms your words from tongues that curse others to tongues that bless others. Tongues that lift up, tongues that spread the gospel, tongues that bring joy, tongues that speak well of others because you have a heart that believes well of others. And so may our prayer be the prayer of the psalmist. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, help us to see clearly our need, Father, for transformation in our hearts in order to be transformed in our speech. Father, you say we will be known by our words. May our words be pleasing in your sight, Lord. And for those here who, who may need new tongues because they need new hearts, let them see the beauty of Jesus, the one that in his speech brings life, to the lifeless, brings good news to those in desperate need of it. And may they grab onto the gospel, put their faith in Christ, and be rescued from hearts that curse others and tongues that do the same. It's in your name we pray. Amen.